Hey everyone, it's Rob. Uh, just a little heads up that we had a technical glitch while recording the episode, and uh, it was a catastrophic uh, laptop failure, but we didn't lose any of the recording, which is great, but um, our audio quality is a little bit off in places because we had to use our Skype recording instead of using a recording of each of our voices mixed down into one final mix. So uh, apologies there, and um, but we think you'll really still super dig the episode, and it should uh, sound pretty good, but just a little bit tinny and weird in a couple of places. Uh, anyway, enjoy the podcast. And uh, also, we uh, have an Instagram now, so if you go to opposable underscore podcasts on Instagram, you can check us out. And also, we're giving away stickers for people who share an episode. So um, share an episode, and we'll send you a sticker. Welcome to the Opposable Thumbs podcast. Opposable Thumbs is a podcast where Taylor and Rob tackle a new creative challenge every two weeks and talk about our accomplishments, failures, and lessons learned. Matthew Steinke is our guest this week. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are excited to have you as you are a maker of many wonderful things. Um, my name is Rob Ray. Uh, I use the he, his gender pronoun. Uh, I run the Exoskeleton Art Space in Los Angeles and host infrequent art openings and events there. Uh, and I'm also an experienced director at an interactive agency here in Los Angeles. And I'm Taylor Hokinson. I'm an artist and educator based in Chicago. I'm a he, his kind of guy. And uh, really excited to have Matt on. Matt and I were former uh, studio mates 15 years ago, 17 years ago, something like that. Wow, it's been a long time. Yes. Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself. All I've got right now is that I'm an artist. Um, and, uh, musician, composer, um, and I live in Austin, Texas currently, although, uh, we plan to move pretty soon. So currently located, uh, based in Austin, Texas. And, um, I do collaborations. I compose pieces for live performance. Uh, I compose music for dance and movement. Um, I also compose experimental media performances that involve video and robotics and musical instruments that I design. And I'm about to start making some visual art again, which is, it's been a little while, but that's happening. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that the last time I saw the more you know, straightforward visual art you were making. Was it with Encaustic? Is that what you were doing? I mean, this was a long time ago. Yeah. When you say visual art, are you back to, back to static images or what? Um, I'm back to sculpture, um, but probably, I think, I, I kind of feel like the Encaustic, I did some Encaustic work uh, because my mother actually does Encaustic work and she taught kind of, taught me how to do it so i kind of took it on for a little while and um i wasn't the only other creative thing i had going on at the time was a band that i was playing in so i was able to kind of focus on it for a bit but um i've moved back to sculpture and 
kind of, you know, I don't know. I guess I I thought of encaustic at the time as sculpture, even though it was 2D. Um, to me, it's very like has to do with depth and encasing some kind of object, um, which is the you know the painting or the drawing itself. Um, but yeah, so that I was doing that. Um, I guess just to back up a little bit. Um, I had a tiny shop in Brooklyn when, before I moved back to Austin that was uh, a, basically like a walk-in closet and there were power tools stacked on top of each other and it was really dangerous. And uh, I was kind of interested in going, getting back to designing instruments again um, after hadn't, having taken a break from that for a while. And it was it was fairly dangerous and that was kind of one of the reasons why we wanted to get out of uh, Brooklyn just because it was the the limited amount of space that we had so I came back to Austin and I just kind of let it let loose and started building out all these instruments that I had been thinking about and trying to design for a while and I've been doing that for the past four years since I've been here I've been creating experimental musical instruments um, that involve uh, electromagnetism and uh, robotics and combined with uh, like digital music composition, so basically composing digitally and then creating a physical output, whether that's resonating metal using pulse width modulation or if it's making robotic mallets and instruments hitting things um, or keyboard playing keyboards, whatever. So I'm kind of interested in sort of formalizing my my. Uh, experience with that um and i've kind of gotten to a point where i feel like i've almost made everything that i want to make and now i'm sort of refining a lot of my ideas um i just cannot imagine feeling that way that's amazing (laughs) well with with the instruments with uh with the actual music i'm still i'm always interested in composing music but i've uh yeah i've really I put I've put a lot of energy into um, kind of exploring these areas I felt like weren't really that defined, and I've been able to kind of create my own uh, methods for using, for instance, like electromagnet like electromagnets uh, to do to resonate drum heads or metal objects, almost like a physical synthesizer. Um, and I've kind of you know, now it's it's more like I've created these tools and this sort of these toys and time to play with them. Um, so I am more focused on that right now. Although I do have a little split focus, which is kind of the 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 next thing that is kind of it is an experimental answer, but I am I'm trying to design a new uh, actuator for a robotic mallets and uh percussion that is uh that doesn't have that has less friction and doesn't involve solenoids which click oh it doesn't have a mechanical noise yeah so i'm kind of in secret you know designing these (laughs) little actuators uh, which i'm hoping to have done uh in the spring i wanted to work on a paper as well so that's kind of like my side project but it's also important i wanted to also want to make it open source so this design that i'm coming up with anybody can 
download and you know it's a whole open source thing you can perfect it hoping that people will perfect it um so yeah, yeah i don't want to say, i don't want to say too much about it because it's not fully realized yet but that's my goal are, are you able to share i think you were telling me that there was a, a conference you were targeting for the paper or would you rather keep that yes so the the nine conference the new uh, new interfaces for musical expression happens once a year, and this past year, it was at uh, it was in Copenhagen, and I got to do a performance there and meet some really amazing instrument designers. And um, I played a, I did a performance with other with uh, Troy Rogers and some other roboticist robotic music folks. Um, I think their group is called EMMI and uh, Expressive. I don't know what the acronym is. Anyways, so yeah, um, so they and then there's some amazing yeah there's and then there's papers and presentations of various instruments and the big theme this year seemed to be um, haptic feedback and resonance coming from the instrument that you're performing with and then translating that through software through electronics and then back into the instrument so this kind of feedback I guess was a big theme. Um, another big theme, I think, was the idea of this developing a musical instrument for the public or versus developing a musical instrument for yourself as an artist. Mm. And that, yeah, so that sort of design, those two design strategies. And then the other theme was trying, was sort of, they were trying to formalize, um, a process for developing musical instruments. They called it NIMECraft. And this idea that that new musical instrument design could follow this process of prototyping a, an instrument, and they were trying to kind of come up with this i this define this idea of what that is that the culture around developing musical instruments. It was a little difficult to to grab, but that's kind of one of the that was one of the that was one of the workshops I was involved in, which was actually quite fun. I find it interesting to hear you talk about that formalization because I always associated your practice with more of a punk rock sort of, I'm going to do this because I feel like it and using kind of the tools at hand. Um, I'm thinking, for example, one of my favorite pieces of yours was a, a felted kinetic statue called Kermit the Man. Am I remembering that correctly? <laughs> He's still here. Yes. <laughs> Wait, right, right there with you is Kermit the Man there. No, he's in, he's in a box. Okay. Um, <laughs> Above the dryer. So, so yeah, so, so I find this is the case with a lot of things, right? Like tattooing or uh, graffiti or whatever, that they get pulled into these structures. And then as they're getting formalized, they there are great benefits and then things are also potentially lost. Are you feeling any challenges as you bring your sort of um, DIY aesthetic to a more articulated and academic structure? Yes. Definitely. <laughs> and, but that's not, but so I can hold those, that sort of tacit knowledge that I have as an artist dear, you know, to my, I can hold that to my own person as an artist and I can definitely use that to make art like Kermit the man, which I love to do. Um, but in order for me to share some of these, some of the strange knowledge that I've sort of developed over the years, probably it's been like 20 years since I've, as I've been, yeah, I've been building, I've been doing robotic percussion for 20 years. Um, 
yeah, I kind of I've had to develop some kind of breadboards, as you might say, for uh, student for students at workshops and uh, kind of a, a language in order to speak with to communicate with other robotic musicians, musician, uh, you know, composers who are using robotics. Um, but I think that, you know, when you formalize, I mean, I think that was also an interesting, an interesting point that you bring up because that, the, the workshop that I was in was called digital luthier, digital luthiery, hmm. <laughs> which you know, a luthier is a, a person, an, instru- uh, an instrument maker who makes stringed instruments, violins, banjos, cellos, guitars, and they, uh, their, you know, they, their work is their designs are based on transforming the string through the bridge and the soundboard or the pickup, and converting that, converting those vibrations into sound, and that's sort of the, the science and art of being a luthier. And so they were trying to kind of create create an environment that was like a that was a breadboarding environment, prototyping environment. Um, within a formal context so they were kind of in within this workshop they were kind of saying hey academia is slow you know this process of documenting and formalizing is slow how can we create a sandbox or a playground for designers to move quickly and experiment and and they're also the guy they were the group that they're a group in um I don't think they have a name, but they're a handful of uh, musicians and engineers that I think are at, I want to say Sussex, but I'm not sure, somewhere in somewhere in London. I can't remember what school it was. Um, but they developed the Bella board. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's kind of like a, a Raspberry Pi huh. board, but it's geared towards music. Oh, that's cool. Sound. I, I I was actually curious about that. I, I mean, I've I followed your work for a long time. I remember an acoustic work you did that I think about all the time, which is it was like this is it's hard to describe painting, but or acoustic worker or any anything I guess. But uh, it was like an it was like sort of alien like figures performing like mummification. Yeah, over a surgery table. Yeah, and that like that like I don't know it like permanently imprinted on me, and that image <laughs> comes up a lot like in my head. <laughs> yeah, I I can picture it right now, and I think that was yeah fifteen years ago or something. Yeah, yeah, I really like that image a lot. Um, I, I was curious about um, you've been making um. I guess robotic maybe is the right word, uh, instruments for a super long time, really. And I was curious, um, I, I saw a picture of a drum that you made recently, or, or at least had, took a picture of it recently. And, and it dawned on me at that time, like small scale kind of prototyping and manufacturing has changed so much since you first started making these objects and i was curious about like um because when i think of you making an instrument i think of probably like a lot of time in the wood shop and with like various wing nuts and stuff like trying to set different you know ranges of a solenoid or something like to get kind of uh 
tuned up the performance you want out of a drum or out of a guitar or something and and i was just curious like how that's what your thoughts are about sort of how maybe that's changed and if it's if it has provided like a way for your instruments to become differently nuanced or or is it kind of just all the same but different materials or i don't or i don't know i was just curious like how that's been for you yeah laser the laser cutter has been a big help um I just I I have less time than I used to. Yeah. So I I use the laser cutter um constantly to do all my latest work. Um and I also source parts off eBay that are incredibly inexpensive. Nice, yeah. So I can make something and then you know if it doesn't work, no big deal. <laughs> Move yep. on. Yep. Um and then I've recently started 3D printing. I just built a 3D printer, so I'm just I'm very green, but I'm yeah. just starting oh, cool. to do some stuff. Which uh, which kits did you go for? I got the TiVo Tarantula Prussia I three or four. I can't remember. Oh so, yeah, I, I I can't keep track of all of it, but that's a Joseph Prusa uh, joint or whatever you call it. I think so. It was like <laughs> crazy cheap. It was yeah. it was two hundred bucks. Yeah, really um, but I've just been printing parts for it like mm-hmm. recently, just like you know, strange fan connect connectors and things. Um, but yeah, three D printing. I mean, uh, laser cutting, especially, I think, is really great because I like wood and I like the sound of wood. It has a a nice, you know, quality as far as you know for instrument making. Yeah. Um, because wood is both resonant and damp sound at the same time. Sure. Um, you can use it to do a lot of different instrument making. And it, I think it just looks better. And I like... I, the other thing that I am interested in is, like, visually, as sculpture with my instruments, I'm interested in making them look like... Kind of like... Uh, like, you know, as if they were invented you know, in the early 1900s or 1920s, like I'm interested in connecting robotic music with, you know, like traditional, like Victorian robotic music, which is player pianos and yeah, calliopes. And I'm interested in, in being connected to that because I feel like there's a lot there, you know, and uh, there's a composer, Colin Nancaro, who I really like, who, who created crazy music for, player pianos and punched his own cards and punched his own scrolls. And, and I think that's, that technology is really fascinating. I also think that it really like MIDI and robotic music currently just is completely derivative of that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I enjoy going back to that and sort of kind of thinking about various technologies that got overridden by say like, Recorded music, for example, like uh, like like actually, you know, recorded music, like turn like tape and and uh, vinyl and 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 thinking about, um, you know, taking that those I like electromagnetism to resonate metal and and you know that idea which was you know like a Hemholtz resonator which was a very early design used uh, re- used electromagnets to resonate um, pitchforks and so I took that idea. And I created this instrument that I call the Tyne organ, which is uh, 
20 something uh, electromagnets that are resonating tines mounted to a soundboard and I'm able to you know create you know 20 whatever software oscillators to resonate those tines through an Arduino but you know they didn't have Arduinos back then but yeah. it could have been done back yeah. then which yeah, I think yeah. is fascinating in that you can you know that sort of lost technology and re- kind of repurposing it and it's almost like a it's kind of you know it's very it's very sci-fi it's like a parallel universe it's like as if blimps you know as if the hindenburg never happened you know like we would have blimps yeah 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 totally there's a great um arts group sort of um in los angeles that imagines that the blimp uh became or or is as popular as the blimp used to be which is really nice yeah. um, <laughs> a nice way to think about the world Especially in Los Angeles, where everyone sits in traffic all the time. There's a, um, I'll have to look up the name of the author, but a sci fi author I was really enjoying had this notion that um, the closer you got to the center of the galaxy, physics would actually change in its rules, how it operated. So, and then the um, the galaxy was constantly, or the universe, I guess, I, I don't know what the, the unit measure is here, but, <laughs> but it would um, yeah. sort of almost like, the way that a plane has to fly through weather systems and avoid things, there would be like these systems of higher or lower physics. So if you were traveling in a spacecraft that could do, you know, 5,000 times the speed of light and you accidentally hit one of these pockets, then you would be slowed way down and it would take you, you know, generations to travel through this sort of piece of weather oh my that altered the, the physics. Um, so make make it that what you will. It reminds me that no, that's that, awesome. That's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that we now think of time as something that you could manipulate because I don't know if pre-industrial, you know, pre-industrial revolution, if that concept existed. Mm. I mean, definitely, you know, my day job is an animator, and I'm constantly working with timelines. And I come home, I compose music on the computer with piano roll, digital piano rolls, and I'm working with a timeline and I can, you know, reverse, go back. When I write, when I write music, I always write the ending first and then I go back and then I write the intro and then I write the middle. And I think about time forwards and backwards. And, and I think that's, it's interesting that, especially as an animator, you really think about time, you know, in small increments and fractions of seconds. And so, and you plot it over a graph and over, timeline and so that that idea is really interesting i mean i guess i guess music composition is that and that's what the way it's been yeah that may have been one of the first kind of stabs at it in a way right yeah yeah i guess that would definitely be that um but it's interesting now that it feels like um that idea is really ingrained yeah especially in like filmmaking yep you know like just let's say D.W. Griffith, for example. Yeah. Are you guys familiar with that whole thing about how, and I'm just remembering this from a particular book, so you know, perhaps a listener could correct me, but my understanding is that he supposedly invented cutting to continuity, where he was the first person to say, oh, if this train is traveling from New York to Los Angeles, we don't have to actually show and travel the whole way. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> holy shit, you know, like the, the idea that you would then cut out 99% of that journey and then get a more impactful result for leaving things behind. It's, it's funny to think of that as a, 
it's kind of like thinking about perspective as a technology that was invented. Yeah. And so, wait, so riding that train, you would just like fall asleep? That's the idea? Like, Well, well, I think the idea was that if you were going to try to depict, so say you were going to depict someone driving a car from point A to point B, and it was a 20-minute drive, before cutting the continuity was an established idea that was being used by filmmakers, you would think, well, I'm never going to include, and now I'm just making assumptions here, but, but I think the idea would be you would stick to narratives that all happen in real time because right. to show something that didn't happen in real time would be really boring because you'd have to capture all of it. Right. right. And so the realizing that the audience could understand what on its face appears to be just a, a leap forward, you know, um, they would understand that it's just sort of storytelling shorthand yeah. needs to be regarded as an actual accomplishment as opposed to just something that existed the second that film existed. I wonder if that happened ever happened in like uh, drama, like theater. I mean, yeah. I know that time, you know, must they, have. yeah, must have. But, but, but you make a good point because film takes all of its cues pretty much from theater. So I wonder, yeah, I mean, can you think of sort of classic theater where they do that, or is it really just here's a scene and then here's I another mean, scene? I guess. I mean, I guess even in like literature, you're you're going from, you know, there's time that's missing. So it's, sure. it's not a, it, it couldn't be a, it can't be a completely new idea, but I think maybe what's new about the timeline is the, is the playhead. Maybe the fact that you can really scrub the playhead, you can go back to this time and, and do this. And maybe our brains are a little bit more fine tuned to time in a way that is different. I'm, I'm guessing. Um, well, and you can I mean, also I know, argue... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I just know... I mean, I, the, what makes me think about that is that over the past 10 years, you know, like, television plots have become insanely complicated. Yeah. yeah. To, the, to the point where I, I actually can't keep up with a lot of what I watch on TV. I can't... Oh, are we flashing back or... Where are we? I mean, so that's, you know, that's something. And like how, how, uh, Matt, before you came on, Taylor, uh, mentioned Inception, which is like now a shorthand almost in the popular vocabulary for that kind of idea of like reality warping, time warping. Yeah. Kind of thing. And I told Taylor, I'd only ever seen half the film and then I fell asleep. So I don't really ever know kind of how it washed out. And Taylor, sort of said like well you've you've seen the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i can't remember it well enough to know if there was a twist or something but i think recently reply all the podcast was talking about how hacky it is at this point that if anything is sort of self-referential or recursive in any way you just say oh it's it's like the inception of you know uh, pizza baking or whatever <laughs> <laughs> uh rob we should really talk about these um Let's do it. This discussion's great, but we should get on to uh, invention. Shall I? Uh, shall I get the conversation started? Yeah, Taylor, do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah. So the challenge, uh, the challenge given to us by Federico Tobone is uh, jigs. It is, and um, you know, established pretty loosely. I think he sort of fleshed it out a little bit more by talking about tools that make tools. So if you guys want to take a look, 
we're trying ourselves a new technology this week where everyone's got preloaded zip files. <laughs> so, yes. so examine my zip file. I'm seeing a CNC stuff. I'm seeing CNC frames. I'm seeing a, a tail. computer in a closet. And oh yeah, okay, cool. And oh, there's a oh the computer in the closet. That's the the last image. Is just my setup right now because I'm trying to help my kid nap. So I'm uh, podcasting oh. on from the top of a uh, washing machine. The first photo is looks like there's some um, Matt. What would you call that? Like uh, some supports sort of screwed down. Yeah, some plywood frame. Yeah, mounted to a piece of MDF. And definitely a CNC. I'm seeing the paper, the piece of paper yep. for leveling, I guess. Oh yeah, and then we've got a video. Videos, CNC videos are always captivating. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna turn the sound off. There we go. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it just CNC'd out two channels, and now there's a photo of two blocks of wood with many, many clamps on them. So it seems like there's two pieces at least sandwiched together, uh, maybe gluing them together or just holding them together for some purpose. And then we can see the CNC has done quite a bit of work. Oh. Uh, wow. So it looks like there's a lot of sandwich layers or removed layers. It's hard to know with CNC because it's like the when the bit passes, if that's the stack that's layer. That's a remove, removed layers, yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. And it's then a piece there's of solid poplar. A cool... Sh- oh. What looks to be, oh, there's some, is that leather? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I some nice leather. rolls of leather. And I'm guessing that, I'm going to make a guess that you've made a form mm-hmm. to make something with the leather. That's what I got. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let me, uh, let me give you guys some background on it. So Cool. I've been working, this is actually a project that's happening over a longer period of time with Dieter Kirkwood. He's a, a local Chicago fashion, wait, clothing designer is the term. I slapped my hand for saying fashion designer. He may be listening right now <laughs> as while he's driving out uh, to work on yet another fantastic project. So Dieter, stay awake. Don't, uh, don't crash your car. So, um, yeah, so, so there are a number of, of jigs involved in this process, and I was this week I was trying to think about what I was going to do as I was standing above all these jigs and making them. <laughs> and so I just started recording this thing I was working on. So, so the first thing are these strips of wood that you screw down on the bed of a CNC table. And then if you reset the X, Y, zero of the bit to be a little bit into the negative territory of the wood and then cause the bit just to go straight up and straight to the right what you can effectively do is make yourself a stop so that when you put rectangular blocks on the CNC table, you know for certain that the lower left-hand corner is at X, Y, zero. Um, so that's a way 
that you don't have to be really, really careful about how the block gets placed on the table because you've sort of made this jig um, for placement. And then there's also an image you guys talked about where there's a piece of paper under the end mill. And this is a funny example of running, you know, this $100,000 machine. But then as you're trying to determine where Z0 is, right, so how far the bit is away from the material vertically, you just wind up sticking a piece of paper under it, and then you tell it to reset at zero if you can't move the paper anymore. <laughs> so it's this really you know, expensive device in this ultra-cheap and probably not all that accurate way of zeroing it. Um, yeah, because how, yeah. how many mils thick is a piece of paper? <laughs> well, right, exactly. So depending on the, um, the, the tightness of the tolerances you're looking for, you can get uh, this little brass uh, milled shape that you stick on top of your wood. Wow. And then it's electrically connected to the bit, so the bit just comes down very slowly until it touches. Oh my gosh! And then it would it would add the, the exact thickness of the billet and know where the surface is. Wow! Uh, but for something made out of wood, you just get it pretty close. That's yeah. all right. That's cool. Uh, yeah. So I made some stock, uh, two big pieces that needed to be thicker um, to account for screw down, and then these were made into a two part mold. So I'm working with Dieter to make a computer bag. Uh, so he he designs things in leather and was interested in looking at molding felt and molding leather. Oh. So we're going to take these two halves and compress a sheet of felt. and you So you wet it, compress it, and then let it dry. And, of course, this is something Matt's worked with, too. And so that's to make the pockets for the bag. And then also just yesterday we went and bought an entire um, half hide, a half cow hide, at this uh, local place in Chicago. Uh, so we're going to be uh, building that thing out. So the project's not done, but those were some of the jigs that were involved. And then as a bonus, I have my podcasting jig. So anyway, nice. Yeah, the two, the two, the two blocks are roughly what, like a foot by eight inches, something like that. Uh, maybe a little that? bit wider. Yeah, um, ten inches. But uh, yeah, you, you get it something like that. Yeah. And then the two, so the two pieces. So there's. Um, Sort of almost like a garlic press or something, right? Like you put the leather yeah. in between the two pieces and then you, do you wet the leather or do you just mash it? So leather, I think that's the second thing. So we've already done this once for felt and it works really well where you just put it in there, it's wet, you mash it together and let it dry and then it keeps the form. Okay. I think the issue for the leather, my understanding is that a lot of leathers are impregnated with oil. Um, and so that will resist taking on water. So we need to figure out, does it get steamed and then half the thing is the heat? Or you know, So, so I'm not sure exactly, but it, it, it is doable. So we just need to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And then the two pieces that you made on the CNC, you, you show a sort of side view photo, like kind of in, in profile of the two pieces. And I was curious, is do the p- two pieces fit together perfectly or did you create them with that gap knowing that like a piece of material would run between them? Right, so yeah, I, I made it specifically with a three sixty four gap because that's the thickness of the the felt that we're working with. That's cool. Um, so you can't. There's nothing setting them apart. So you can push them together until some of the surfaces hit, but yeah. the, the fit's not exact because it is an offset. Right, right. That's cool. Do you know what the the? It looks like two sort of hunks, of, like giant pieces of chocolate. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I was thinking it almost like modern the modern dog bowl yeah. modern dog dish <laughs> uh 
I mean, you know, there's nothing stopping me from doing that once I'm, <laughs> I'm done making the leather. Oh, uh, yeah. Bespoke CNC carved dog bowls. I'll be rich. Yeah, I think you just the made a million dollars. The Eames dog head, head collection. Oh, man. Like the modernist dog life. That's got to that's gotta happen. Yep. Yeah. I feel like they're too, they're they're really... too hairy and messy to, to jive with modernism. We, if you could you make know, a it's dog that never poops. Yeah. It's, well, it's interesting because I'm new to CNC, and I I've, there's one around at the shop that I work at, but yeah. I don't see like you know when you when you first see something like a laser cut thing, you know, or like a 3D printed thing, it's like wow, that is so cool, just because <laughs> it's so you know it's so like the yeah. the contours of the wood, you know, the edges are so clean and. Um, so I'm I'm taken by that imagery currently. That's why I'm talking yeah, about modernism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. I mean, I feel like it is the new modernism, right? Like, like I to me, like when I look at Bauhaus furniture, I have to imagine that just looking at furniture that looked like that was very captivating. You know, just like look at that, like perfectly yeah. cylindrical pillow or whatever, like on a on a on a lounger, and now to see sort of an a newer school version of this, like just like manufacturing technique that makes things look really different, you know, Mm -hmm. not to mention the fact that the thing that I made is, is going away in the final product. Right. So, you know, I, I really kind of aestheticized the mold and really put a lot of effort into it being an attractive thing, but it's never going to touch the audience, um, which is another, I think potential stumbling block a lot of people have when mm-hmm. it comes to this kind of fabrication because um, you'll hear all sorts of students and, you know, many professionals too, they'll carve something on the CNC and then realize, oh, if I make this step over small enough to give this thing a really refined surface, it's going to take, you know, a thousand hours for the thing to cut it. So then they reduce their step over and leave a bunch of scalloping in the wood and they say, well, I like it that way. <laughs> right? you know, sort of talk yourself into it. And so I think there are some aesthetics that are not widely recognized yet to be just being lazy. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of people are trying to sort of pass them off as um, intentional choices. Is the, is the leather place in Chicago? Yeah, it is. I have to ask Dieter what the name of it is. It's, uh-huh. it's not a, um, uh, a, an individual facing uh, organization. So I just went with him. Uh, he has a business relationship with them, Yeah, but it was great. I mean, we got back into the shop and, um, uh, they just had, you know, the smell was really impressive and, um, it was definitely a working shop. I mean, it was not set up to receive visitors, which made it that much greater. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And are, are these local cows? That I do not know. I'll <laughs> <laughs> about it. Um, Are these farm I, table cows? <laughs> I know that Dieter farm is definitely table. into that uh, scene. His um, his wife Jill, uh, I'm sorry, that's his sister-in-law. Uh, his wife Susie makes um, sort of artisanal jam, and she had started out uh, just making them for friends, and that at some point, like Oprah got a hold of one or something. Hey, I can't remember what it was, but, but there was a um, somebody called in and said, "Oh, you know, can we get like a thousand of these a week?" <laughs> she was just making them you know, 30 of them during Christmas for friends and stuff. So, so these guys, they're really into the slow movement of making individual objects and, you know, crafting stuff. And then that is one of the open questions is how 
far down that rabbit hole that you follow it because it can get ridiculous to the point where you just can't make enough things to satisfy any market. I, Dieter was also telling me about some guy he was reading about that is like the guy that makes abacuses in Japan. Oh, no. <laughs> and how there's like this one dude, and, and if you want an abacus, man, he's the dude, and it takes, you know, this incredible amount of time, like months to get each of these things manufactured. But, um, you know, only, only the weak would get a, a, a El Cheapo Chinese you know, plastic abacus, like his, his abacai are incredible so, so there's a stack of things i need to get for the show notes but maybe yeah maybe we can convince william gibson now to listen to our podcast now that you've talked yes. about very slow <laughs> slow manufacturing processes of abacuses abacus yes. abacus abacuses that's probably what it is i love yeah i love that um anywhere now that is like regrettably retail you know where they're like okay i guess you can come in like i i totally love because like we've kind of fetishized the retail experience at this point like the apple store sort of redefined Apple in general just like like has made a the retail experience and it's nice to go in a place where they're just like I guess you can come in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all about experiences. Yeah. Every every kind of purchasing yeah. seems like outside of the internet every kind of purchasing time that you have is is an experience. Yeah. Yeah, it can't be digitized. Yeah. I got a new router for my house and like opening up, you would think like there was like some sort of uh, t- Tiffany lamp or something. <laughs> and it's just like a <laughs> hunk of plastic. Yeah. Uh, Matt, do you want to go next? Uh, sure. Cool. I want to, I'm getting started and I'm learning in addition to learning 3d printing right now, I'm also going to uh, start vacuum forming. Oh, I'm interested in vacuum forming um acrylic sheets as i don't know how thick i'm hoping to get to you know 16th maybe eighth inch i don't know we'll see um and so i made myself a little starter vacuum former and this is totally not my idea i just googled vacuum farmers and i found <laughs> this guy made one with a toaster oven and so i was like okay i'll make one with a toaster oven and having like very little free time these days i decided i was just going to laser cut one really quick so i uh laser cut a vacuum former box and and then i made a couple different frames and i have not tested it yet um my vacuum is full of dust so i've got to clean it first and then i will run a test um but why i'm doing it is partly because i keep thinking about i'm i'm constantly thinking about bubbles and like these contained spaces i'm i'm constantly coming up with images and ideas that involve my own fascination with um, vacuum chambers and, and, and encapsulated space. Um, I collect relays. I'm sh- I don't know if you guys do or not, but I Ooh. just love mechanical relays. Yeah, sure. Who doesn't? Um, yeah. And I have another one that's like a. It's some kind of road. It's some kind of mechanical sequencer switch that rotates and clicks little switches, almost like a music box, but it's. A switching mechanism and it's a very it's a, like a larger relay 
um, that I really enjoy looking at. Um, so I want to make some sculptures that are that sort of investigate this fascination with encapsulated spaces. Um, Taylor, do you remember the, uh, the professor at the Art Institute, uh, Joe? I can't remember his last name. He's very old. He's in sculpture. Joe something. Uh, I think I remember. Is he the guy that made that jig that you could where you could use a router to um, carve a completely spherical ball? I he I'm not sure. He was like a he made you know I know he made kinetic art and he did puppetry. Um, I can't remember his last name, but anyways. He said something. I had him as an advisor, so I feel embarrassed. I can't remember his last name. He's a really <laughs> cool guy and really, really like interesting and and older, which is, was really you know it's really nice to have kind of a friend who's older when you're younger. Um, but he always, you know he used to say always pay attention. That was like his biggest mantra was pay attention to what you pay attention to. And so I'm interested. So when I was thinking about creating a vacuum former and creating these sort of like bubbles, these encased things. I was trying to figure out why, why am I fascinated by this and why are other people fascinated by this or are they? And, you know, um, in Copenhagen, I went to the Arkin uh, uh, Museum and they had a really amazing collection. Um, and there was a piece, it was this sort of like pink bubble lamp that was, I just couldn't stop looking at it. And I saw other people that just could not stop looking at it. It was this, I don't know what it was. It was something, it's just, it's a, you know, it's like a jewel. It's also, uh, you know, it deals, there's space in there. I, I just don't, I don't really, I'm still trying to comprehend what that, you know, desire is, you know, to deal, to do want that, that bubble, that thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'll send you guys that. Yeah, the, yeah, it'd be great to get a picture of that. Yeah, that's cool. I have a question um, about the the your vacuum former. Yes. Uh, I'm going to describe it a little bit. Just what I'm seeing. Uh, there's a toaster oven. <laughs> uh, it looks like a kind of mid-sized toaster oven, and there's a wooden frame. It looks like that you've created that seems like it would slot into the toaster oven. It's like the width of the of the toaster oven um, grating, right? Yes. And then there is like a laser cut sheet uh, with like a grill. So like there's maybe those a box. It's a box. A bo oh, it's a box. Oh, it is a box. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yep. It's a, uh, it's and then you have an actual like shop vac vacuum. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That connects yeah. to one of the side panels. Yes. Um, and then the inside there's a channel. That sort of avoid like subtracts some of the space inside so that it focuses more on the air underneath the grill. Oh. So it kind of pipes. You know, it's just it's just a laser cut little box inside of there with a top that kind of I don't know how to explain it, but it's kinda of, it's just like a little channel in there to to eliminate some of the extra space. Yeah. I realize yeah. I'm I had made one that was more shallow. But then I realized that I'm hitting the the hose, yeah, right. trying to pull it down. So I'm like, oh, well, I need to just make a bigger box. But I don't want to deal with all that volume, that air volume. So I subtracted it. Inside. Do you do you I, cut a hole through the toaster oven for the air hose? 
Oh no, the toaster oven is just to heat the plastic on the frame, the acrylic. Oh. Okay, so you insert the sheet into the toaster oven by itself. Yeah, and then you put the form on top of the grill. And okay. then you turn the turn the the vacuum on and then you pull the acrylic down over the form and it's supposed to suck all the air and and you know encase the form. It's supposed to, you know, suck it down all over the form. I see. So once once the acrylic sheet has become soft from the, the heat of the toaster oven, you sort of pull it out, almost like pulling out like a almost like a a beehive like like wax out of a beehive, like you pull the sheet out and then you input yeah. it, then you put it in a box and it's still kind of wavy because it's still hot. And then you turn on the vacuum and that shapes the plastic around whatever yeah, object you, you have inside. You pull it over the box. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay, cool. That makes sense. I was, I, I was like, man, you've, how does the hose not melt? <laughs> but, but now it all makes yeah, sense. It's, okay, yeah. It's cool. deep. It's about seven inches boxes so when uh when matt and i were in college he would um, spend hour upon hour just hand sanding acrylic and at some <laughs> point at some point became really like he was having a lot of um, respiratory distress and he was getting really freaked out <laughs> about his health and i just love the fact that he's making this device <laughs> <laughs> so yeah w- welcome I back have- your hy- hypochondria matt well, I, you know, I don't live in a big city anymore, so I have a garage. I have a, you know, a little shop, ah, and I have lots of ventilation. And nice. Ventil- ventilation is one of those things, definitely, that matters more. Like that, you know, it's like when I was sixteen, like I couldn't have been bothered to like open the garage door when I was spray painting my skateboard deck. You know. How high is the vacuum former box? Like, how big of an object could you? It just, you know, if you imagine four pieces of toast, that's what the okay, that's <laughs> yeah, the cool. toaster. Of, so. Yeah, it's cool. just a, you know, it's a starter vacuum former. When I once I yeah, once I get once I get cooking on this stuff, you know, once I get going and I'm really good at it, then I'll scale up. That's great. Do you have Matt? Do you have any sense of what you will be making with it? Yeah, so I want to make, um, I got an opportunity to show in a gallery that's opening up in the, very soon in the fall, but I'm probably not going to show till the spring. So um, I had a conversation with an artist that I met in New York. Um, I've lacked ambition as an artist, like not as in, to make art or good art, but to yeah. sell art. Yeah. And I'm just now starting to think about what what would it be like to sell art? Um, and kind of like, oh, you know, maybe if I didn't, you know, maybe if I, maybe if I sold art, I could have, I could make some money. That would be great. <laughs> um, and so I started thinking and I, I know I asked him how, how do you sell art? Like why, how do you make art to sell? Yeah. And he was like, well, I am personally very interested in what people desire and that's why, what, where I start. And so I thought, okay, I'm as an experiment, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make some stuff that I think is desirable and I think that other people might desire and sort of play with that as a an experiment, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I got started. Um, but paying attention to what I pay attention to, I'm all I'm very fascinated with 
you know, like I said, these sort of like encapsulated transparent, translucent spaces. Um, so I, uh, some of the, one of the themes I want to work with are, um, or is space and geography. And um, I think I'm going to use 3D printing for some of it and encapsulate maybe some small scale landscape allegory imagery. Wow. Um, I might do some uh, instruments like uh -huh. clocks kind of that look sort of like clocks or relays. Um, I want to try a lot of different things. I might actually reference another piece that I did in grad school. I think Taylor Solis is, um, I did a piece with as an ant farm with these sort of like encapsulated little chambers where ants were organizing garbage and plastic. And um, I like, I really, in, you know, enjoyed sort of the autonomous Jurassic element of that. I was sort of like dealing with elements that weren't necessarily of my own making, which mm -hmm. is like the ants. And so I, I think I want to try a bunch of different things um, in these little spaces and, and use the actual space to, you know, the idea of, these bubbles to curate these various experiments and some of them might be more narrative some of them might be more just sound experiments um some of them i think i want to I, I also want to make radio transmitters and some of them and have them transmitting like tracks of a composition so you yeah yeah that's great space yeah. hear different tracks um so yeah i'm gonna play with play with it i i i don't it's too early to really know um, if I get good at 3D printing, I'd like to, you know, crank out some things, but, um, I'm very green with 3D and I can't, I can't get a very good print right now. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I've, there, I've always been into the dyingness of radio and that like radio is this broadcast medium that like, we have less access to, I feel like, like now, like you could, you could stream, you know, a radio station if you wanted, but on, on, on your desktop web browser or whatever. But, and I guess like maybe radio stations now have an app or something that you could like listen to that with. But I, it's funny that like in a way like this mass medium is like, there's a certain kind of element of like it being a bespoke object that you could sort of have a radio receiver be this novel thing in your house that receives just, just its own thing as opposed to all the things like it would be like, just like m making a newspaper with only your own, like with your own story on it or something, or, <laughs> you know, in, in a way that like it's a mass medium, but that is somehow gradually closing itself off just because other things have become, more uh, more of the day-to-day -day go to ways of getting information where with the radio i feel like it's like the, it seems like there could be a situation where more of the channels are either just things that no one really listens to or just dead air you know like over time or or it doesn't matter and like you just make your own thing that's at like 89.6 or whatever and like that could just be the radio could just be someone's like unique way to understand a sound yeah it's like it's an ocean. Yeah. It becomes an ocean, literally. Yeah. And sonically even. It's yep. White noise. Yeah. Yeah.
That's cool. Yeah, I mean, wow, who, thanks, man. who among us was not obsessed with number stations as a teenager? Oh, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I still am. Yep. Uh, now, great. Rob, okay. Rob, do you listen to the radio in traffic in L.A.? I, I don't uh, because I'm a, a, a podcast nerd. Um, but I do listen to I have a shortwave radio on my desk uh, and I listen to that. But the problem is, is it slays my productivity because I become so into turning the dial, like just to listen to weird stuff that it's not like a thing I listen to in the background because I just start twiddling the dial around and i'm like what's that what's that like <laughs> and there's so many weird it becomes an instrument more than it becomes a listening device like i listen to the weird sounds that it makes and make weird sounds with what i'm hearing so quickly that i've stopped i, I should take it off my desk and like put it somewhere else like like make a, make like a school desk chair with it built in or something so i could just sit there and mess with it as opposed to trying to actually get something done listening to uh like some world radio station in the background but yeah too bad that you have to get things done yes it is it is <laughs> sitting hey, listening radio. to the shortwave is much cooler well, one of these days when the podcast is the only thing you're doing although i feel like there's something about this undertaking where it's it's special because it's something that we're all doing around the edges of our <laughs> everyday lives you know yeah right? right yep the fact that you can't just spend a thousand dollars on your project is it's nice yes yeah yeah so oh i recognize this pile of cans <laughs> yeah rob has this incredible collection of what appear to be cans that were resuscitated from a 1950s bomb shelter they're all totally rusty and their bags wow. are all breaking open there's like hundreds of them and this is at your house right yeah there's a thousand and eighty of them yeah yeah i've counted them i've sorted them into size um oh this jig is hilarious next one i am seeing a jig i'm seeing a some pokers and some can holding holding apparatus where there's screws that look like they you stick the can in there and you poke holes <laughs> that that is definitely what it is yep yep and, to uh, flesh it out a bit there's um there's a turntable so the cans there's clearly illustrated spots where the cans should be anchored and then what i'm trying to figure out is is there a specific reason why you would need two holes that are that distance apart does it seems to have been picked for a specific reason but i can't figure out why is it for recycling what do you think matt there's a spring i like this there's some oh there's a dual it's a dual spring actuated poker thing it, it is <laughs> it's two screw flathead screwdrivers that i sanded down into the ice picks <laughs> screwed together yeah they need to make holes that are spaced a specific way on each one that's right yeah, yeah. i so i have a a thousand rusty tin cans that I collected from a sort of abandoned landfill out in the Mojave Desert. Um, and I have always wanted to do something with these cans, like make some sort of uh, desert trash art object. Because <laughs> um, I was like, I, the desert is a, 
as I've learned living in Southern California, is an extremely fragile place. It's like a place that is one on one hand trying to kill you, and on the other hand, kind of like when you make a mark on the desert, that mark sticks around for a really long time. You know, so there's a you know a lot of people sort of have this kind of cavalier attitude about the desert of like, oh, you could do anything out there, and it's like you could, but but it will definitely last for a long time. So I was like, if I want to make like desert art, which I'm I'm pretty into. Like, can I just use materials that are already there? You know, because then yeah. I'm not, um, I don't know. that Because then it's like, well, it's already out there. So if I add a little bit to it, then I feel kind of okay. But if I was like to go, you know, squeeze a bunch of construction adhesive out there, I wouldn't feel great about it. Um, <laughs> so I've collected these cans. And of course, with many great art projects, you have a great idea. You do X amount of work that somehow resulted in a giant pile of stuff being at your house for a long time. <laughs> and then and then part B of doing the work hasn't yet happened. So what I want to do is make a sort of giant rattlesnake rattle out of all of the cans. <laughs> and I need a way to kind of st- stitch them together. And the cans are of about eight different sizes, but most of them have about the same width. Um, and there's three main can sizes that have the same width so i've i've sketched onto the turntable the turntable is a sort of 13 inch turntable almost like a record player and then there's like a wooden arch that spans the record player um with the two screwdrivers sticking down through the arch as a way to like quickly poke two holes in a can and then um, move on to the next can and then move on to the next can because i have a thousand of them to do um to quickly poke the holes but in a repeatable way yes exactly because I'm going to, I want the holes to be this, I have to thread um, like kind of natural fiber yarn string through through the cans. And I want them to kind of hang correctly, you know, like kind of equidistantly hang, like evenly hang. So I need the holes to be in a kind of repeatable centered fashion. So um, I tested it out and it, it does work. So I'm excited about that. So now I just have to punch a thousand cans <laughs> with holes. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, how are you going to mount the rattle? Uh, I think what's going to happen is I think it's going to be um, kind of hung from a pole. So the wind, I'm hoping the wind will sort of create the rattling sound. Uh, it won't be nearly as fast, right? It's like a snake rattle, which is sort of based on, this kind of very high speed vibration. Um, but I, I would like it to sort of have a kind of wind chimey, like clanking sound, I guess. So I, I think, yeah, the yarn's got, the thread's going to sort of be, uh, some of the cans actually are closed on both sides, which is a problem because they were sort of open with the old school, like can puncher. Um, so some I have to open up, but I'm going to thread the thread through, through one of the ends. So did you, so did you you got these cans out of the desert, right? I did. I, I spent I spent a couple of afternoons in like 107 degree heat filling the back of my truck with with rusty tin cans. And the reason why they sort of still work is the desert and the desert things rust to like a certain point, but there's just not enough rain for them for that sort of chemical reaction to keep going. So there's a lot of things with like a surface rust, kind of like a desert rat rod car, right? Where like it's rusted on the outside, but it's still sort of mostly structurally integral. Um, well, the, the reason I ask is just, I think there's something also really interesting about 
you know, the fact that it's garbage and you touched it, but then also took it away. Yeah. Sort of, it, 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 it lends complexity to your notion that you're not adding to the garbage because you took it away and then you're taking it back. Right. Right. There, (laughs) there's tens of thousands of more cans out there, which is, is kind of like, which is kind of good. And I, I, I had thought of, I, I wanted to do it on site, but it's, um, it's in a little bit of a precarious place. That's, somewhat it's kind of heavily monitored it's by a solar um power plant and uh there's definitely like lots of kind of white contractored contracted security trucks that drive by and stuff and they thought you know oh this is weird this guy's pulling cans out of the desert um but i thought if i was doing something obviously arty or strange out there they would they would give me grief so i was like well i'll just take the cans out and then return them in its final form <laughs> this isn't even my final form yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice excellent yeah i think you um you guys were way jiggier than me i'm really i'm really digging these objects i had a real hard time like because i i made a horrible mistake which is i was like a jig a jig what jig will i make and it's like that's not actually how you make a jig. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, you, you got to do something else. Yeah, you make a jig through doing something else, and then realizing that you need a jig, right? And then <laughs> not the other way around. And so I got like I spent days just looking online at people's jigs, and there are many amazing ones, you know. Um, sure. But and like I would get some ideas, and then I would fail, and get some ideas and fail. And then I was like, oh, I have this giant problem I need to solve of these giant bag plastic bags of tin cans I need to deal with. So, and I need some way to process a thousand of them without, uh, uh, to mass experience without like just, you know, working your, your face off, (laughs) uh, sanding something down or sort of doing each one by hand. Uh, I needed a faster way to do it. And I was like, Oh, that's what a jig is for. Yes. Excellent. Well, are we ready to ask Matt to bestow us with a new challenge? We are. Oh, Matt, the time has come. What do you think? So, um, a couple things came to mind. Do, I, do, you, do, you, do, I, do you want me to just give you one? Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about multiples, that's fine, but it's ultimately up to you. Yep. So, one of the things that I was thinking about is, um, and this is a little more, like, uh, abstract, I guess. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was thinking about is design. So design versus art, and um, how design and and I I work you know I've been working in a, a design industry for quite a while and it's all about solving problems. That is the goal to solve problems, and and then I think okay so then maybe art is about. Causing problems or yeah, creating exactly. problems. <laughs> so that's well, one idea: is to create great. a problem. Man, that's great. <laughs> that one's I think is kind of fun. The other one, if you if you want a, a little something a little more um, tangible, uh, the other thing I was thinking about is storage. And that's because partly because space is such an issue right now, and population explosion. Housing bubbles, um, cost of living, it's all you know. Refugees. It's all about 
It's all about get off my lawn. It's all about space. Yeah. The story is my other is my other uh, the other thing that I would my yeah. other. I love them both, Matt. How? What are you gonna pick? Yeah, I don't know. I, I was yeah. gonna let you guys pick. <laughs> no, I can't do it. Yeah, I can't I, do I, it. Yeah, we can't pick. So oh, you can't pick. <laughs> yeah, we can't pick. Oh, all right. So I the think first if one I say create a problem, is that right? Yes, yeah, to create a problem. Problems. Cool. And the second one is yeah. storage. Okay. Cool. Storage. Storage solutions is, is the second <laughs> one. So, um, I mean, storage solution is a little more makery, designy. So I don't know if that's more in line of the of your podcast. But I also like the idea. I, I like the idea of subverting, you know, the design thinking yeah, process. Sure. And, yeah. and let's instead of problem solving, let's make problems. I like. I think I would personally be interested in that one. So let's pick that one. I'm Great. glad you picked that. One. Yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're both cool. They're but both yeah, super first cool. First yeah. one you said it, I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> that's great. Do you want to? Do, what, and then, would you like it to be yeah. called? Would you like to be create a problem or problem creating or <laughs> problem making? Problem making. Yep. Crazy making. Um, awesome. Excellent. And then We're while you guys making, are doing the yeah, making problems, yeah. I don't know. Making problems. Creating problems. Sort of the antithesis of design thinking. Yeah. Creating problems. I like it. You can find photos of our finished projects at our project site called projects.opposablepodcast.com. We'll have Matt's, Taylor's, and my project there. Um, we'll also have links to show notes where we post uh, other stuff. And we also now have an Instagram account um, called opposable underscore podcast. Uh, and we've been posting lots of cool stuff on the Instagram account. So uh, please check that out. Uh, you can listen to episodes directly on opposablepodcast.com. You can also subscribe to Opposable Thumbs with iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, and all the other podcast app platforms. There's also a cool new one I just uh, was checking out uh, called Breaker. Uh, yeah, the podcast app is called Breaker, and like you can um, see what other people are listening to. What I mean, I think a lot of things that people do with podcasts is tell their friends or other people about what they're listening to. And I like that this app has has those things already built in. Um, if you're listening and you would like an opposable thumb sticker, we can get you one. Uh, just share a podcast episode on social media or rate us on iTunes or send smoke signals or do some other cool thing to let people know about the podcast and um, let us know about it and we'll mail you a sticker. So uh, you you can send us your address and like a screenshot or whatever it is uh, to uh, podcast at gmail.com or just hit us up on social media or something and we will um, totally get you a sticker. So please let people know about the show and uh, we would love to send you a sticker in the mail. Um you uh, can also hit us up on Patreon at patreon.com slash opposable thumbs. We would like to thank Nick, our latest Patreon sponsor. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, Nick has now joined the League of Patreon Supporter Badasses, and we would like to see you join as well. Um, if you can, we have three sponsorship tiers there. You can check out, and anything you can donate really helps. And it's um, you can even donate like literally $2 a month, so... Uh, that would really be great. Um, we would like to thank uh, Wolf Mask, our logo designer. Uh, if you get a sticker from us, you'll have uh, Wolf Mask's great um, neon thumb wrestlers logo uh, in your very hands. Um, 
We do have a code of conduct on the site. Our podcast is dedicated to providing a harassment-free experience for everyone, regardless of race, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, physical appearance, body size, knowledge of subject matter, or religion, or lack thereof. We actively support an inclusive environment, and we want you to be a part of it. You can check out our full code of conduct over at our site. Um, Matt, do you have any links or anything that you want to share that you think people would be into? You can access all of my current work, collaborations, uh, my blog, uh, current recordings and videos, um, audio recordings um, at my website, www.matthewstanky.com. Cool. His site is amazing. There's a really great picture of ants on your site that I like a lot. <laughs> that that project was the you made an ant farm, is that right? Yes. Yeah, okay. I wanted to make something that um I was sort of interested in in alchemy and kind of using kind of throwing elements together and what do you get when you when you do this, this and this? And that was the idea. It's like what do you get when you mix plastic which doesn't compose with ants? The initial process of decomposition oh, yeah. and dirt and food. And 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 then kind of creating this landscape allegory from this kind of generative narrative, I guess, time uh long duration piece from that. Oh, cool. Can and we see what the ants did with the plastic? Like, is, is there... Uh... They they created their own little infrastructure. They Whoa. moved it around and made, made did the best they could with it. That's... Um, we, we have something to learn from that. Well, Matt, thanks so much for being on. It's really great to hear what you're up to. Your work is super cool. Everyone should go check out your site for sure. Um, uh, Matt, do, do you... Do you tour at all these days or do you do you are you playing shows in the future and I, should people look out for I that i don't or? i don't tour like i used to as a rock musician yeah, where, I, where right. you kind of go city to city right um i make trips so oh, cool. do a performance in say houston and then come back and then fly out so i i flew out to copenhagen and did a performance there um that's not to say that i won't tour right. in the future right right um and I usually, when I do tour the U.S., I I always do best on the West Coast. So I'll mm-hmm. probably come down to your neck of the woods. Oh, uh, cool! That I saw you last at Machine Project, I think in Los Angeles. Oh, were you a, there? Yeah, a few years ago. Come? Okay, so yeah, yeah, I went. I played at Machine. Yeah, that was definitely one of the more fun shows. Yeah, yeah, that was a super super cool show. Machine Project is a great place for your work too. I think so. That's really great. Yeah. So yeah, folks, if you see Matthew Stanky's name appear in, a, in your entertainment, local entertainment newspaper or something like that, definitely go. It's an amazing experience. His work um, changed how I think about kind of robotic music in a lot of ways. Um, there's a very sort of aesthetic usually wrapped around automated music, and Matt kind of blew the doors off of that in my head. <laughs> so it was really great. So um, Matt, thanks so much for being on the podcast, and um, we're excited to see other stuff, and we will be digging into your topic creating problems thank you yeah thanks and i also have one of those wkrp boom mic stands wow Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> hey, is everybody recording right now? I am recording. Yeah, yeah. yeah. good. Because this is.
amazing. WKRP is definitely going to make it into the edit. Yeah, for sure.